Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Welcome back to another episode of Mormonism Live. I'm Bill Real. Radio Free Mormon is there to, I guess it would be my left, but actually you're seeing them on my right. There we go. So if I point the wrong way, it points to them. RFM, Good evening. How are you? Bill Real, it is so great to be back where we always are. Yes, right back where we always are on Wednesday nights at 6.20 p.m. on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Periscope, and other places. Uh, I just want to give a shout out. This is really quick. A shout out to somebody under the name of Jack's boy, listener to the podcast who came into the shop this week and was just praising up and down you and me and uh, the material that we put out and grateful for us had been life changing to him. So Jack's boy, I just had to look up at that because it's kind of a little moniker there for him. Um, That's so nice. Yeah, folks, if you want to donate, go to mormonismlive.org, and uh, if you could just make a $3 a month or $5 a month donation, it ends up being whatever. What is that, 40 bucks a year, 50 bucks a year? And uh, it, it gives us 60 bucks a year, 72 bucks a year, something like that. And uh, it helps us to kind of keep this thing going. Uh, RFM, I'm in charge tonight. I'm the boss, okay? I just slam my fist on the table. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about logical fallacies. Oh, wait a second. I'm yeah. so sorry. You're in charge, I know, but I have to throw myself in the way of the Please. oncoming steamroller. That is Bill Real. Um, yeah, I heard some news. Uh-oh, what's the news? The news is that we're no longer going to have Saturday evening session of General Conference anymore. Oh, this is a big deal, right? Like, there's no more priesthood. We were talking about this for just a moment off the air. Um, they put out an article. Was it the Deseret News that said I know it? The, I know the church news on the official church website had it. Gotcha. And their explanation for it was that now everybody can see it, so there's no need for a priesthood session. But what that tells you, RFM, is that the value of priesthood session is its exclusivity. And now that it's not exclusive, it no longer has any value. And as you were saying, there's another little thought attached to that, right? Oh, yeah. It's the strangest statement. And if you don't believe me, go to the church newsroom, I think is what it's called. Yes, on the church website for the announcement. They actually give the official church explanation for why it is that they're doing away with Saturday evening sessions from here on out. Um, The reason is because now that everybody can see it, now that it's available to everybody, uh, we don't need to broadcast it anymore. Right. And, And if that's the case, doesn't everybody still watch the rest of it, too? I know everything else has always been available, so that would seem to apply equally to every other session of General Conference if we're going to accept that explanation at face value. Yeah, and you and I, I would assume you would agree with me. I think the real reason is that this church is changing fast and furious to just be another expression of mild Christianity with an extra book or two, right? There are so many changes that are going on. It's amazing. We have now under this current leadership of President Russell M. Nelson taken away an hour of church. We've gone from three hours to two hours. Now we've gone from general conference, five sessions to four sessions. It appears that um, it is possible to have 
Wait, wait a second. It is possible to have not too much of a good thing. <laughs> I'm not sure if that came out right. Yeah. Well, being the expression, you can't have too much of a good thing. Well, apparently you can. And so that's why we're cutting back on church time. And that's why we're cutting back on general conference time. I understand that as with the announcement about reducing church from three hours to two hours, this new announcement about general conference has been met with great rejoicing among the saints. Yeah. Isn't it strange? We reduce church. Everybody's happier. We reduce general conference and everybody's happier. And I have to wonder what would happen if we went from two hours to one or maybe one hour to zero. How, how to make everybody really happy. I know when I quit, it was pretty damn good. I was I was thrilled and happy as could be, as a lark, as they say. Mm, yes. I'm sorry, I interrupted you oh, with that breaking good. news. Please go on with your discussion and introduction about, was it logical fallacies or mm -hmm. rational thinking? Yeah, I, I want to make a joke about phallic something, but I'll just, instead of rhyming or trying to reverse words. So logical fallacies, and we have a special guest on tonight. His name is Spencer Wright. Spencer Wright, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, yeah, we're glad. Great, great to be here. Yeah, yeah, introduce yourself for a moment. You are an author of a book that I have referred people to multiple times. You have, um, you have stated arguments or types of ways to uh, talk about these kinds of issues that I have plagiarized up and down. If anybody has watched my Facebook page and get a kick out of the way that I interact with apologists or defenders of the LDS faith, uh, you're almost always hearing Spencer Wright's arguments that I steal from him. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Spencer. So, well, I, I wrote the book basically to talk about the, the problem with, with rationality. And in fact, that's one of the first things I want to talk about tonight is why we, why we think we're being rational and actually very frequently we are being rational, but we're more being intuitively rational. We, we understand it at most, everybody understands intuitively what it means to be rational. When we talk about rationality, people have a pretty good idea, but, but people have a hard time uh, quantifying what they mean. And in fact, that's, that's kind of the, the first, uh, the first point that we that I would like to talk about when we, when we get into this, but basically I wrote the book to help people understand how to quantify rationality. Yeah. And the name, uh, I'm sorry. The name of the book is how to think. Right. Yeah. Yes. How to think. How to think. That's where you find it. You look, find it on Amazon or at, I don't know, your local Barnes and Noble, probably Desiree book too. Uh, it is. Yeah. I think, I think that's <laughs> prominently displayed in the, in the front window. <laughs> right next to the GA books. Yep. <laughs> um, the arguments you make in that book and the things that you've uh, stated online have been deeply helpful to me to begin in my own head to understand what a rational argument looks like and the types of distractions that we all do to keep ourselves and our beliefs and our arguments close and comfortable rather than having to deal with whether those things are rational and whether they fall apart. So the book, How to Think. So why don't you get us underway, Spencer, and let's talk kind of during this first segment, we're going to we're going to have you kind of set up something that all sides are doing and help us to be better in these conversations. And then we'll get into a couple of logical fallacies uh, in the in the second half of the show and talk about those and give some examples. But go ahead and get us kind of squared away with this first segment. 
Yeah, <clears throat> so the, the first one I wanna talk about is the ambiguity fallacy. And it's usually uh, kind of discussed in a slightly different way, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk about the ambiguity fallacy here to, to, to help understand uh, how, um, how we, you know, to 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 be uh, re like religious faith-based thinking, you have you kind of have to use this ambiguity fallacy. But most everybody uses it all the time, and so I think it's really important that we, uh, you know, if if we're going to be rational, we're going to consider ourselves rational. We need to consider how we use this fallacy ourselves. And uh, oh, in fact, even like Tom right here is, is bringing up some awesome ones right here. What, I was going to mention some of these terms. So like, I'm just going to read off a bunch of, of terms that I that was just thinking about over the last week of phrases that we use that actually sound very rational, but actually don't mean anything. That they can be ju used just as easily by, by somebody who is not being rational as somebody who is being rational because they don't actually mean anything. So okay, try not to get personal here. <laughs> so, so we're 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 talking about uh, uh, phrases like credible. When when people say use credible, reliable sources, you, you think about the when you think about your own sources, the 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 the, um, the the news that you go to. Of course, you think it's credible, but the people who think exactly the opposite of you when they're going to their sources, they're also thinking that the the the. The news that they are reading is these are credible, reliable sources, and obviously they think that your sources are, you know, fake news, whatever the case is. Fox News and CNN are considered credible sources by different parties, and hence the word means nothing. Yeah, it, that's exactly the point. We've we've got we've got to somehow quantify what we actually mean by by credible when we say credible otherwise the, the term credible means basically nothing um makes sense or that makes no sense when when you're listening to an argument you don't believe when we say what what does that even mean to say make sense it doesn't mean anything oh that's so obvious it's so obviously not true or that's so obviously true I uh, all the time by the way all of these i'm using so and we and we all we all use them. We're, I I don't really know anybody who doesn't use these. But when these become kind of the foundation of your argument, where you you just kind of you know it's the it's the little tone of voice that we throw in there, and we go, oh, that's crazy. That makes no sense. And it's like, well, okay. So what is what's the what's the the uh, quantifiable? You know, how do we how do we quantify? What what are we actually measuring when we say makes sense or doesn't make sense? Right. Right. Can I throw in just two seconds? I'm so sorry, but you're fascinating me here, Brother Wright. Uh, first off is recently in the general conference, Credible was used when the church was encouraging its members to only go to credible, reliable sources for information about the church. And that's why we, we knew they were talking about us at that time, because we're the credible, reliable ones. Obviously, yes. That, that's <laughs> the only possible definition or explanation for what they're referring to. And the second thing was, um, I'm an attorney. I've been one for 31 years. Frequently when I'm reading briefing, I try not to do this, by the way, but another party will write obviously or clearly. And as soon as I see that, I think, I'll bet this isn't that obvious. And, and they're using the phrase precisely because they can't really back it up. They're, they're, they're throwing it in there because they don't have the measurable difference. In fact, I, I had asked a... Um, a law professor one time because I know that in the the, the world of law there's a, there's a standard called the reasonable personal person standard, uh, 
Well, when we say reasonable, that's again, what, what does that even mean? So I asked the question, I'm like, what is it, what, how, do we, how do we quantify the reasonable person standard? And the response was, well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like what, what, do we, what, do we, what do we really mean when we're talking about reasonable or the reasonable person standard? It doesn't mean anything. Uh, common sense. Common sense is another one. If we just had common sense, just, just use your common sense to figure this out. Well, how do you define? Everybody thinks they have common sense. Everybody. My mother used to say the problem with common sense is it isn't very common. <laughs> yes. And so we hear, we hear something we don't like and we go, well, obviously that wasn't common sense, but the person who agrees with it, that was obviously common sense. Right. That's what I, my experience is that the people that are really intelligent, I find, are the ones who agree with me. <laughs> Same idea, right? Yeah. It's also uh, people, who, people with good sense of humor. They're the ones who laugh at my jokes. Yeah. So it's yeah. very easy for me to figure out who's who. And and this works in more. You're not laughing. You're not laughing right now, Spencer. <laughs> it was hilarious. Eh, okay. The, well, the apologists, you know, <laughs> and again, he, as Spencer, as you're pointing out, we all do this. But just in Mormonism, when we talk about credible, for instance, it becomes really easy for apologists to dismiss, say, Robert Rittner. And to say John Gee is the credible source because he and, and then all we do is we add extra. It's almost like reverse ad hominem where we now praise the person for their accolades rather than the merit of what they're saying. And we say that John Gee is both a Mormon and an Egyptologist. That makes him one of the very few people on the planet who is qualified. Hence, we can dismiss Robert Rittner, which, again, gets into this idea of we all see our authorities and experts as the credible side. Yeah, that's the appeal to authority. Right, right. So my question is, feel free to throw out more terms if you've got them. But my question is, how do we go back into the real world after this episode and begin to conversate around these things differently? So <clears throat> the, the, the trick to quantifying rationality is to do two things in, in any argument. You, you have to do both of these things. The first thing you have to do is be able to explain all of the data. And so that, that, that's not a problem because even within Mormonism, the Mormons can explain all the data, everything that is there. But, but when we talk about data, what we're talking about is what can be measured. So, so if you can measure it, it's data. If you can't measure it, it's conjecture. Right. So anything that we can measure, anything that we can we can uh, uh, actually, you know, use our senses to to uh, bring into our into our brain is the data. And so what we have to do is if it is measurable, you have to be able to uh, explain all that data. And I, I used to say all the relevant data. But the problem is, once again, relevant becomes sort of this subjective term where it's like, well, I'm not relevant to me. I'm going to just throw it. I'm going to throw out that data. And so so the reality is we can't you can just say, well, it's not relevant to to what we're talking about. But that is also conjecture to say why that data is not relevant. So the first thing is account for all the data. You have to be able to do that. The second thing is use less conjecture than uh, the next best theory, the, any any other theory, and so and it, uh, both of these things are quantifiable. So so when we're saying I have to account for all the data, all all available data, then if you have not accounted for all available data, then you haven't you haven't accomplished the first step. And if you're con if you have a more conjectured theory than any than you know somebody else, it's not rational. Okay, so I've got a follow up question, which is. When you talk to a believing, faithful Latter-day Saint, their 
what they consider in their head to be the measurable piece of data is the Holy Ghost testifying to them in some way. And you and I understand that that is internal to that person and it can't be measured by anybody outside of them. And it seems as though we're speaking directly of things that could be measured as an accepted understanding of a collective rather than just inside a human being, correct? Do you have a response for that, by the way? When someone says, I, I felt the Holy Ghost, that's my measurable data, how do you come back to that? So, so what the, my usual response to this, and, and pretty much any, any believing Mormon will agree with me when we're talking about this, will say, okay, so first of all, you don't, you don't feel the Holy Ghost. You feel feelings. You, you have, a, you have a, an actual uh, bodily, bodily experience that, that can be picked up in the MRI scan. And we can, you know, the University of Utah had, had done the study where they were, you know, these are Mormons who were, were going into the MRI and they were saying, okay, when you feel the spirit, go ahead and let us know. And they, they could actually measure the, the you know, the, the, the brain activity when they were feeling the spirit. Right. That's a, that's a feeling. So, so the data, when we're saying, what's the data, what's the thing that can be measured? It's feeling. That's it's not Holy Ghost. It's feeling. But wait so, a second. Are you what, are you actually saying that scientists have proven the existence of the Holy Ghost? So what they what they measured the data was was feeling. They 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 felt something, and then the conjecture is that we I'm 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 assuming that that feeling is caused by the Holy Ghost. So we we can have two theories now, right? We are, I mean, there can be more theories, but I can give you at least two theories for what just happened right there. Number one is you had a feeling that was within the normal range of normal human feelings, and in fact, what they what they found was those same feelings can be found when you are gambling, when you're doing drugs. Those are the, those are the same areas of the brain light up, and so that's one that's one uh, possible explanation to account for that measurement. And then the second one is to assume that the creator of the universe is is talking to you. Yeah, and and I know too requires more conjecture. Yeah, yeah, I know too that Jonathan Haidt, who's done a bunch into elevation emotion, in a lot of their research, they could create artificial experiences where the person thought something was happening, but it really was actors, and um, the truth of the matter wasn't really what the person saw or experienced. And yet they still felt that elevation emotion or what most Mormons would call the Holy ghost. Yeah. Okay. So uh, can I, can I say just something else? I, I think it's funny, the more familiar I become with logical fallacies and, and thinking errors uh, and try and, you know, use them in my podcasting. Uh, when I become more aware of them, um, then I start catching myself using them and I stop and I laugh, and that's why I was kind of laughing earlier when you said, well, there's two conclusions from this experiment because you were almost gonna do a false dichotomy. Yes. Logical I, fallacy, I and then you caught yourself and you said, well, yes. there's more than two. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and, and so that's called bifurcation, and there and there could absolutely, you could have a, a thousand theories, but feel free to come up with any theory that's less conjectured than your feeling is accounted for by the fact that humans have feelings. Yeah. yeah. And I, I tried, by the way, when we had Kwaku on, I tried to explain to him rational thinking. And I tried to explain that whatever uh, conclusion requires the least amount of conjecture, I got that from you, uh, or the least amount of allowances. By the way, when uh, John DeLynn interviews Terrell Givens, the very first go around early in his time podcasting, uh, it's like a seven part, five part, something like that. And Terrell says, uh, if you'll just make some allowances, then Mormonism can do just fine. 
And I've learned now looking back that the moment someone needs an allowances and the other side doesn't, we already know offhand which side is thinking rationally, don't we? Yep. And in fact, if you, if you say uh, with enough allowances, if you say you're going to allow whatever allowances, literally any theory works. Yeah. You, you, you cannot come up with a theory that doesn't work if you're allowed to create whatever allowances. Right. If we make some allowances, aliens could have killed John F. Kennedy. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Some allowances. <laughs> you have a soundbite on that from General Conference, don't you, Bill? Uh, which, which one are we talking about? I can pull them up. Well, I think it's something about giving somebody a break. Oh, let's see here if it's uh... give brother Joseph a break. <laughs> right. And that's basically give brother Joseph some extra allowances and everything will work out just fine. And it does. It does. It always works out. Yes. Yeah. Enough, so, enough, enough conjecture. It'll, it'll work out. Yes. And so before we jump into a couple of these logical fallacies and talk about them and talk about how they're used in the world so that people get a good grasp of it, and then talk about how they're used inside Mormonism, I do want you to spend a moment talking about rational thinking, because it really, these fallacies, what they're designed to do is to create allowances. They're designed to deflect or dismiss or obfuscate as well. Um, can you talk for a moment about what you mean by rational thinking? Uh, well, and I, I think that rational thinking is ultimately what we have been describing. So that, so rational thinking is figuring out how to quantify, uh, you know, put, put it into some sort of numerical measurable format of what we're talking about, as opposed to using those phrases that we talked about. Oh, I, I was actually thinking of one of the one too, which is so much evidence or no evidence. And so, and, and the reason why I mention this is because it seems like uh, ex-Mormons or the people who are talking to the religious people will, uh, will throw that phrase out a lot to say, oh, well, Joseph Smith has no evidence whatsoever. And it's like, well, there, there actually is a, a testimony in, in court, a testimony is evidence, even if you have no other evidence besides the testimony, that is considered evidence. But again, we look at it in terms of that's one, one data point that we have a testifier testifying of something. And then we put that into the larger scope of all the other data surrounding it and come up with the least conjectured explanation for what's going on. So, so, so if we can walk away from this with one idea, it's to stop saying no evidence whatsoever, uh, you know, as, as ex-Mormons to Mormons. Right. And I will tell you, this comes up frequently when I have clients come in the door and there's a case against them. It might frequently involve children, but uh, the evidence is the testimony of somebody else that the defendant did something that was criminal, right? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people saying, well, they have no evidence. And I say, well, actually that is evidence. <laughs> and it's enough evidence to send people to prison and it has on many occasions. And I think what they're thinking in their head is corroborating evidence. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think as you guys are both talking to, like in Mormonism, Mormons have evidence for every belief they have, whether it's the apologist in three letters, NHM in the right place, right? Whether it's, um, um, you know, a, a Joseph Smith denying polygamy gives a certain group of people room to advocate that Joseph never practiced polygamy at all, for instance. Uh, so with that said, what is the first logical fallacy that you'd like to talk about tonight? <clears throat> so let, uh, one, one that I think is actually really important and one that is a, like a critical necessary uh, fallacy if you would like to believe in a, you know, a faith-based belief uh, is special pleading. 
And so special pleading, a way to kind of describe this is it's a ridiculous claim and then a ridiculous rule for evaluating the claim. So, okay. so we, we, so we, we can make a crazy claim, and of course, just just like we said, with the with with enough conjecture, you can always get there. With a with a special rule, you can always support any basically an idea. Um, and so, like an analogy that I use frequently to talk about this is the difference between saying uh, uh, my dog ate my homework versus God ate my homework. And so, so when you think about, let's just take the first one for the rule, the, the standard rule that we would use for most claims. We're a teacher, teacher's there, a student comes in and says, well, I, I did my homework, but my dog ate my homework. And so I don't have evidence that I did my homework. And here's the claim that, that basically destroys why the evidence or, you know, why the evidence was destroyed. And so we don't just go, well, I mean, who can possibly know? Who can really know? I guess I'm free to believe whatever I want. And so you get 100% on your, your grade. You know, the, the normal standard uh, default uh, rule that we would follow is say you made a claim without evidence. You made another claim that basically just says why your evidence doesn't exist. And so you would get a zero on the assignment, right? So we, we don't say it's 50-50. Maybe, maybe you did it. You know, it's like the, the kid comes in and, and has no evidence whatsoever. We just say, sorry, that's a zero on the assignment. But if we say God ate my homework, then all of a sudden it's a totally different set of rules. We say there were gold plates and Moroni came and ate my homework. Right? He took, took, the, took the gold plates back to heaven. It's the same exact kind of claim, but then what that does for the person who really, really wants to believe it is now, instead of getting a zero on the assignment, which is what we would normally do, we say, you get 100 on, on the assignment, or it's 50-50, who can really say whether there were gold plates, right? And so, so it always kind of just, we, we create a totally different standard. We, we create a different rule and then follow that rule. So I, I, I do this uh, uh, magic trick sometimes where I'll say, okay, I have a I have a gold coin in my hand, and then with just a little bit of magic, ta-da! Yeah. So I so I make a, I make a claim that there's a gold coin, and then I make a claim that the gold coin disappeared. But I never had any evidence that there was a gold coin in the first place. Yes, you did. Oh. There we go. Oh yeah, good point. Yes, I did have it. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> See, everybody does it. <laughs> Can you think of other ways this is used inside Mormonism? Uh, the the, there are rules all over the place, especially like uh, the the rules that we have for uh, special feeling or whatever the case might be. They're they're all every everything is always some kind of special rule to to get a skirt around the fact that there that the evidence is is insufficient. Why the health statistics in Utah are the same as the rest of the world, even though Utah has a higher number of priesthood holders giving priesthood blessings, for instance. Right. Yeah. RFM. Can I give an example? Can I give an example, please? please? A special pleading. Okay. Yeah. Joseph Smith versus Warren Jeffs. Perfect. Yes. That Warren is perfect. Is a criminal. He's done yeah. bad things. Joseph Smith is a prophet. Right. They've they both done the same things. And yet we have to make an allowance and make a special case and plead specially for Joseph Smith on the basis that he was called of God and God commanded it. This Warren Jeffs guy, when he was diddling little girls, that was not commanded of God, and therefore, that was evil. Mm, yeah. Yep. Um, is there anything else that we need to say on this one? 
Uh, good, good for me. Unless you got something else you want to talk about with that one. I've got, I've got another example that I want to share, but I, I, I think it's also tied to the other fallacy. Well, actually two more that we're going to kind of tie together and talk about. Uh, so I think I'll share it there. So go ahead and run us through the next one. Okay. So the, the this one was essentially just, as you mentioned, it's, it's basically two different fallacies, but they kind of end up always going hand in hand. Uh, the first one is begging the question, uh, which, which a lot of times people think when they hear that, that that means, well, that raises a question that makes that, that makes me ask another question, but that's not actually what begging the question means. Begging the question is basically saying I'm starting with the conclusion uh, and then I'm going to conclude the conclusion. I'm, I'm starting essentially by believing if you, you got to believe you got to have faith. This is Alma 32 right here, right? Uh, start. If you start with faith, you're going to end up with faith. It's, it's pretty amazing. I think I have um, something that we could demonstrate this with. Let's see if this works. And so I start out with an assumption that the book of Abraham and the book of Mormon and anything else, <clears throat> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true, and on these points we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. So, go ahead. False dichotomy as well. I'm so sorry, but yeah. You're good. You're good. I are, you gonna, are you going to say circular reasoning is the other one that comes in with begging the question? Yes. And, and I it's, thought it's, you were. It's fundamentally the same thing. And also, something that I hadn't noticed in there before was how he says, I just want to understand the evidence within that. So, he's using that word understand. What, what does it mean to understand if you're using that paradigm? If if it can't be if it can't be wrong as long as it's supporting Mormonism and it can't be right if it's going against Mormonism, what does it mean to understand? Right, he, he's to twist it until it fits yeah, your theory. That's, that's what you mean by understand. Yes, yes. That, or the, the the quote. Yes, and, and if you listen closely to him, Carrie is acknowledging that I'm going to start with my assumption and I'm never going to let that assumption go. There are going to be other people who disagree with me, and we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And what he's acknowledging is that there is no piece of data he will ever allow to come in and change his mind, he will take all the data and figure out some way to fit it into the assumption that he's gonna hold until his last breath. So, yeah, absolutely, and he start, he's starting with the conclusion. He's saying, yeah. if, if I begin with the belief that Mormonism is true, I will end with the belief that Mormonism is true. That, that is, he's right, it's true, that's how it works. <laughs> and when I, when I was saying false dichotomy as well in here, He's giving, it's like, it's okay. Everybody comes with presuppositions and assumptions. I come with the assumption that it's true. Other people come at it with the assumption it's not true. So therefore they do the same thing that I do just in the reverse. What he doesn't allow for is people coming to the question who actually have an open mind and are just looking at the evidence and seeing what is the most rational conclusion based upon the evidence. So what does it mean? What does it mean open mind too? What, what it, I'll tell you what it means. It okay. means not starting with your conclusion already fixed in your head. Yes. So, so, and I think that this is the reason why the, like the quantification of rationality is so important that we're basically saying, I'm letting the data decide. 
I'm just saying whatever is the data. If 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 we had if we had measurable data where of leprechauns, you know, running around all the time or unicorns running around all the time, it would be just like our belief in cows, right? We 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 don't believe in cows because cows are real. We believe in cows because we can measure cows. Yeah, and but so, if you make allowances that the that the leprechauns are invisible and they make <laughs> no sound or movement. <laughs> I heard yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> there are leprechauns, but you just can't see them because they're invisible. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, good. I think I wasn't planning on that, by the way, but I thought Carrie fit in really nice right there. That, that's awesome. did. Can I throw in one other thing? And I know that you wrote the book, uh, Spencer, but my understanding of this is there's a slight difference between begging the question and circular reasoning. The circular reasoning is indeed starting with the conclusion and then arguing your way back to the conclusion that you already started with. But that uh, begging the question has to do maybe more with deductive reasoning and that the, uh, I'm sorry, begging the question has to do not with assuming the conclusion so much as assuming a premise in your reasoning. In other words, instead of, uh, you have to lay out usually a premise, usually maybe another premise and then go to the conclusion. And if it's correctly constructed, then it's a sound argument. But both of your premises have to be correct in the first place. They have to be sound, right? Yes, and in fact, this this happens a lot in Mormonism too, where they're starting with some they're starting with some premise that itself has not been proven, and to 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 arrive at some other premise. If the Book of Mormon is true, then the church is true, right? And so so they're so they're not they're not starting with the church is true, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, that first premise kind of depends on the church being true, and so no, you're right. And and so so I think that ultimately what they're doing is they're kind of they're 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 playing a little bit of a game where they're saying like these two terms are two totally different terms and I feel like it gi it gives the impression that you're starting with something that's not the conclusion and ending up with the conclusion, but they're, but they're both basically the same thing. They're both just Mormon church claims. I would really like to get your thoughts on this because this is something that I do hear frequently in the church, which is this line of reasoning. I, th I think it suffers from a number of problems, but. You reminded me, it starts with the Book of Mormon, because we pray about it, we get a witness of it. If the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet because he's the one who translated the Book of Mormon. If Joseph Smith was a prophet, then the modern uh, prophet is a prophet of God, right? And uh, if he's a prophet of God, then the church is true and you need to get in line with it in order to go to the celestial kingdom. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that, that right there was what I was kind of thinking about when I was using these two lines and it, and it's ultimately the same thing. It is, it is, we're, we're starting, we're starting with what is ultimately the question that we're trying to arrive at and using a, an allowance. If, if the Book of Mormon is true, well, okay, sure. And if the Book of Mormon is false, then that just is still the deductively comes out to the opposite answer. Right. And so it really depends first on if the book of Mormon is true, what do, what do we even mean by true in the first place? And so again, the way that we would determine whether the book of Mormon is true is if the data at least conjectured explanation for the data leads to the, the, that as the explanation. And I don't want to get too wonky, but I think everybody will intuitively understand what I'm saying here, which is that one of the problems with that is that not only does it beg the question of whether the book of Mormon is true in the outset, uh, but it also ends up not being a sound argument in that even if the Book of Mormon were true and we can accept that it's bedrock and go from there, that does not lead to the conclusion that the church today is true and that President Nelson is a prophet. 
I totally agree. Yes, that the, the 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 just if we're looking now just at like the logical uh, reasoning from beginning to end, it's like you're you're that's a non sequitur, right? We're we're jumping from from one uh, premise to a conclusion that does not necessarily follow from the premises. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to note one of the one of the viewers, Jared, is asking how we would define faith, and I'll just throw my two cents in. If there's some major difference, jump in. But faith requires that it is things that we don't see. There is no measurable data, and but something internally to me feels encouraged, pushed, nudged to believe a certain belief, in spite of the fact that the uh, it is not the. Uh, most evidence-based conclusion, it is a conclusion that requires more conjecture or maybe a whole hell of a lot of conjecture. Hence, if it if it was the most rational conclusion, it required little to no conjecture and less conjecture than any other conclusion, faith would be unnecessary. And Mormons use the term exactly the same. Even though they, they try really hard to avoid using the term faith like this. They're like, well, everybody, everybody uses faith, right? Even, even when you believe in cows, you, you know, you, whatever, you, you're still using faith sort of thing. But the, but the point is, and, and I, I think that, that what you said is exactly right, that it's the, if there is a less conjectured explanation for the data and you don't believe that explanation, then you are faith-based thinking. Yeah, and so what, whatever that is, whatever that other explanation is, uh, it, it, because it uses more conjecture, and you still want to believe it. Obviously, we're seeing kind of a motivated reasoning going on right there, right? It's like I want that answer to be the right answer, and that's the reason why I come up with all of the the conjecture to get there. Any any explanation is 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 achievable if you throw out enough, enough conjecture. So, to some extent, Spencer, would you agree that? Faith is the antithesis of rationality. Yes, in fact, the the subtitle to my my book is why rational and faith based thinking are incompatible. That oh. it's not 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 only are they just not the same thing. They're it's actually impossible. You cannot you cannot go with a more conjectured explanation and a less conjectured explanation when they when they are you know at odds with one another. It's, you, you can't do it. Right. For instance, I would not say that I have faith that the sky is blue. And, and so, I, and I would actually, I would actually agree with the Mormons when the Mormons say that everybody has faith in the in the sense that I still actually have to, I still have to have some sort of belief uh, beyond the data. I, I, it's, it's possible that we are living in a, you know, matrix simulation sort of thing or whatever. And so when I go throughout my life, when I, when I take the, 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 the bottom floor to leave a building rather than leap out of the 12th, 12th story, I, I still am having, I'm still exhibiting some belief that, you know, confidence that the ground is going to hold me up as I'm walking, as opposed to the air is going to lift me up and I'm, and I'm flying. That there, no. that there, there's, there's actually, there's actually, I, I have, I have data I have data that says I'm going to step, but there's no guarantee that it's going to happen, that it's going to support my weight the next time. But it's inductive. That's inductive logic. Correct? It's, it's, well, but all of this is inductive because we're starting with the data and then we're saying try to explain the data with the least amount of conjecture. It's, it's very possible that the very next step that I take, I'm going to fall through the floor. It, it, it could happen. No. It's not going to happen? No, inductive <laughs> logic tells us that it will not. That if it's happened a million times the way it's always happened, that the next time it'll happen the same, right? So, so, but this is also the the problem of induction. This is the 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 very the the who was it? Uh, what's the scientist's name? That was the 
I'll have to look up his name. Pro problem of, of induction that is is a, is a recognition that we can't possibly know with absolute certainty based on prior experience. But prior, okay, experience, prior experience will tell us that it's what is more likely, right? What is more likely is also what is least conjectured. But it's nothing is ever a guarantee. There's never a guarantee that the very next time is going to absolutely be what it has always been in the past. Is that okay. Hume, by the way, H-U-M-E, Hume? Uh, Hume talked about this, but a popper, Karl Popper was the guy. Okay. Oh, he had a yeah. bunch of penguins, didn't he? Yeah. He was, he was the black swan guy, right? So he says, if I've never, if I've never seen a black swan, I am only seeing white swans. I still can't say that there are no black swans. I'm just saying, well, if I've only ever seen white swans, then I, I can assume that the next swan is going to be a white swan, but the very next swan could be a black swan. It's possible. Okay. But, and I would, but notice I will, how I was having to say it's possible. It's possible it's, that it could be. It's possible. And I will have to agree with you because the fact that the sun rises every morning and from inductive reasoning, it will rise tomorrow morning. And that will be true a million and one times, but eventually there will come a day when that's not going to be true. Absolutely. Yes. I was just reading the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and that just reminded me of this too. Dude, the, the, the story starts out with the, with the earth blowing up. So... So yeah. the very next day, the sun didn't come up on the earth. Soon, soon as somebody says it's possible, you already know that you've got them, don't you, Spencer? Yeah, we already know that it's less likely. But when we're, but when we're saying it's impossible, then that's a totally different kind of argument. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. I feel that often, bringing this back to Mormon apologetics, um, when I was an apologist back in the 80s, we were proving stuff right and left. I mean, we had... The, the evidence, we had the facts, we had the case, we just needed an audience to make it too. Whether that was true or delusion, I can't say at this point, but it strikes me that that was the outlook at the time. But in the last decade or so, um, when I look at Mormon apologists like Dan Peterson, what I hear them doing now is not trying to prove things, but just trying to preserve a plausibility for the uh, premise or the uh, whatever it is they're saying, um, their claim. Uh, they're saying, well, we can't prove it's true. We're not trying to prove it's true. We're just trying to make it so it's plausible. So there's an area for faith to grow. And I see you nodding. So I, I'm guessing you've heard of this too. But it seems to me that a lot of times when they're saying plausible, what they really mean is possible. Yes, that, I, that is exactly right. They're they're saying it with within a within a realm of what we we, we consider you know it, capable of happening, and it's, it's the same sort of thing when you're talking about the 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 floor. If it's held me up a, a million times beforehand, it's not not ever going to happen. And so if they can put it into that realm of of something that is at least not stretching, you know, credulity to, to the very limit, then it's, it could, it could happen. Right. And, and the same, same thing of me, me saying, yeah, it's possible that the, the, the earth could blow up tonight. Right. I mean, that, that is possible. And we, we can, we can talk about the uh, asteroid could hit us tomorrow and, and we'd, we'd all be dead and, and that'd be the end of it. Right. And so but, but if I live my that, life, it's not likely, right. If I live my life based on the sun's not going to come up tomorrow or the earth's going to explode, I would be being irrational. Yes. Yes. Even though it's possible or plausible to some degree that someday that's going to happen. If I live my life as if it's tomorrow, that's irrational thinking. So well, here's, here's, the, here's the date. Here's the data set. Try to stay as close to the data set as you can with your explanation. The further you get away, the more irrational you're becoming. Yeah. yeah. Taking that idea of the sun not coming up and applying it to religion. 
what would you say about living every day as if you thought that the next day Jesus would come? Well, he hasn't come for the last, you know, 2000 years. So, so it's, it's kind of, that's, that's the problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. More, more likely if we're talking about the, the, the likelihood, I would need to see some data that would, that would overturn the likelihood that he's not, it's tomorrow's going to be like today and, or, and the day before. Yeah. I wish there was a betting line at Vegas on that one. Well, I would think that every day that goes by after 2000 years that he hasn't come, it's got to only increase the odds that it'll be tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, yeah. Let's throw some money down. <laughs> All right. So, special, or so begging the question, we did special pleading first, begging the question. Uh, what's the next one you want to kind of tackle? So the, the, the two kind of that generally go hand in hand when we're talking about religious beliefs are begging the question and burden shifting. And so burden shifting is fundamentally saying, uh, so the, the, the rule is, the normal rule, and mo most everybody would agree, if we're not talking about our own pet beliefs, that um, the person who makes the claim is the person who has to support their claim, right? So if we're, we're talking about a criminal case, the prosecution has to make the case. They're the one making the claim that the defendant is guilty. And so they're the ones who, who bear the burden for providing the evidence that that he that he is guilty and so uh, which is funny too because the the mormon church has recently produced this uh video where they're saying the, the book of mormon on trial or it was mormonism on trial or whatever it was and so they had the person who is essentially the personification of mormonism as the defendant and it's like you, you've completely flipped the script around in terms of who is supposed to be actually providing the evidence. It's like, it's your claim. You're the ones claiming that Mormon, you know, that, that Mormonism is true, that Joseph Smith was a prophet, that, that you know, the angels and, and all that. And so really you're the prosecution in that, that situation. But what they have ultimately done in a video, just kind of kind of a little you know, movie magic, they flipped it around and made the, the Book of Mormon into the defendant, where it's like, you can't prove it's not true. And so, and so ultimately what they do is they start out with the claim, they, they follow this, this begging the question logic, and then they, then they wrap it up with, and you can't prove it's not true. Yeah. And I see this all the time. I'll give an example here. And this was the one I was thinking of earlier. I have been in conversations with Mike Ash. Mike Ash is an apologist for, for the LDS church. He uh, is closely tied to fair or fair Mormon again. And one of the things I always point out, and, and Mike agrees, by the way, when I point out the number discrepancies in the Book of Mormon. In other words, when there is a battle on the Hill Cumorah and there is, you know, 3 million people who die or whatever the number is, it's an absurd number. Mike Ash understands the number is absurd. He understands that, uh, that it is irrational that that many people could be situated in a military exercise and we'd have all these dead bodies. But not only that, you have to supply these armies with food and water. You have to be able to provide them with uh, supplies and other things. And he understands the absurdity of it. So he won't argue that the numbers are factual. What he does then is he asks for an allowance, which is that these prophets are embellishing the numbers and that that is how we explain it. And to me, that runs into the same kind of line of thinking. Um, does, that, does that fit? Yeah, I think it's great. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Any any time where you're basically like flipping it around again back onto the other person to disprove your yeah. claim, you, you are burden shifting. Yeah, it's now my job to disprove that Moroni or Mormon embellish the numbers or that Mahanri, Moriankum, or whoever's, you know, in the battles in 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 uh ether. 
And it's now my job to fight uphill against this idea that, hey, these guys are embellishing the numbers. And so you have to prove that they're not. It, it, it's an impossible position for me to be in because there's no way I can prove, right? I can't, because there's an absence of evidence and I, I have to somehow get in there and figure out how to, how to disprove that I can't. And yeah. so he's asking for allowances, but he's turning the burden of proof on me. It's my responsibility to disprove that Mormon and Moroni are embellishing when the reality is that the conclusion with the least amount of conjecture is that those numbers are simply bullshit. Yeah. And, and the whole, the entire story and this, from the beginning, it's like, and again, they're, they're basically trying to explain away why there is no evidence for the, for the, the battles in the first place. It's like all those millions of people and whatever made them, you know, they decomposed, yeah. the, the metal all decomposed or something, it just all disappeared. In 2013, I went to Salt Lake City and was part of the Fair Mormon Conference that year. And um, uh, Mark Wright, who uh, I believe is works in the history department of the church, and also I think he's a professor maybe at BYU. And he, I asked him the question, I raised my hand and I asked the question about Moroni going from wherever he was to Manti and then back to bury the plates and that whole escapade. And I said, this is absurd. I, can you help me understand this? And his answer in that session was that there's one person that we know of in all of recorded history who traveled a similar distance. And, and that was, that was it, right? Like, so it can be done. It is possible. Right. And the reality is when you understand all the barriers to somebody doing that kind of travel in that time period with the kind of rough terrain that there would have been um, and to get all the way out there and get, it, it is, it is a belief that requires a ton of conjecture. And I think often if the apologist can find one example of somewhere in the world's history where that thing happened, then that's good enough to believe it this time. And, and yet when you have, um, when you recognize that it is near impossible, not just in that situation, but in a thousand other situations that they're begging for some barely possible explanation, the statistics, the old Occam's razor, the statistics say that it is mathematically so impossible by the time you add a bunch of possibles in that it near it essentially becomes absurd to even hold the belief. Yeah, and and I think that kind of goes back to what RFM said earlier about we're we're creating this uh, sort of circle within where things are you know conceivably possible to happen, and that's that's what they're shooting for. That's that's what the the uh, the apologists are kind of looking for right now is to say within that realm of conceivable possibility, that's essentially where Mormonism lies as opposed to just saying it's the least conjectured explanation. Gotcha. Um, can you think of any other examples out there where apologists do that? I know that if we were to sit here and we were to plan ahead and, and write down a thousand of them, we could, but can you think of any off your top of your head in this whole idea of uh, a burden shifting um, or begging the question, other ways that we see this kind of show up? It, it literally comes up and every, uh, a uh, possible claim that you can think of that is, you know, that we would think of as a religious faith-based claim, that's ultimately what it's doing. They're, they're essentially starting, you know, when we say the, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart sort of thing, and you can't prove it, it didn't. Right. You know, 
like so they're 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 doing you have to do that with all of them you have you have to start with the conclusion that it's true and then flip around flip the script and 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 pass the burden off to a person who would who doesn't believe the claim is that why it's so rare to hear of anybody reasoning their way into religious belief i i would think so yes i i think that that's probably exactly the reason so when we go out into the real world and we're having conversations with believers and we're trying to show them or explain to them how irrational their beliefs are first let me say being their adversary in that conversation will make it impossible no matter how strong your argument is almost assuredly you have to come in as their friend holding their hand and walking them through these issues but when it comes to conversating about them in terms of the things that you're talking about it seems like we ought to always try to articulate our language in ways that point them to how would we measure this how could we measure your belief versus my saying your belief is absurd that like how many, how much conjecture and allowances does my conclusion need and how how much conjecture and allowances does your conclusion need and what is the data that we agree upon that we both see and which one of our conclusions requires less of that conjecture and along those same lines something that i have have realized through the process of having you know lots and lots of conversations about this is the reality that everyone is basing their beliefs on some sort of measurement there 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 is there's no there's no belief that started from the from the conclusion and came back to like you think about you know ancient civilizations as they're trying to explain you know the earth how did the earth get here how did that mountain get here well the first thing they're doing they're not they're not starting with the belief in god they're starting with the, the measurement of a mountain and trying to explain how that the, the, the nobody started with Thor, they started with lightning, right? And so the, the Mormons are not starting with with the belief in Moroni; they're starting with a special feeling in my heart. And so every every one of these things is data. And so so one of the first things that we have to do is we have to kind of call out the 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 elephant in the room that that even their belief is a is a ultimately rests on some sort of measurement we 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 always start with measurement everyone starts with measurement and then they they jump to a white you know here's the data set right and then they're jumping to the wildest conclusion that they possibly can to explain that measurement but they're still starting from the data they're still starting from the measurement yeah yeah so when we're in these conversations there has to be some realization that hey i'm on the other side i'm gonna need some sort of data that I can measure and your internal experience is unmeasurable to the entire rest of the world. Hence, we're going to have to set that aside and talk about these issues from the standpoint of external data that we can all at least, whether we interpret it the right way or the same way or agree on it, at least acknowledge that it's there. Yeah. And then, and I, like, I, I kind of, sort of gave up the idea of laying aside the the measurement that they have their internal measurement and right. say well let's just let's agree that what you are feeling is not the spirit what you are feeling is a feeling yeah. and then you are conjecturing that you know so so it takes a certain amount of conjecture to explain the feeling i fully grant you are feeling something a hundred hundred percent with i felt things as, as a mormon it, being an, an ex-mormon I, I i feel things you know i in like buddhist uh, meditation and whatnot I, I feel things and so i can I not only grant them but i fully fully agree that they are feeling something 
But when we're trying to explain that feeling, what's the least conjectured explanation for that feeling? And yeah, so Mark, Mark here is saying, which I think is kind of what you're speaking to before you can tell someone they're wrong, you have to tell them how they're right. You're acknowledging, you're agreeing with them. Like, Hey, I agree. You're feeling something. I'm not going to take that away from you. That's, that's data right there. You got it. Yep. But, but what you interpret that as now we're adding conjecture. Got it. Um, can I say two things? Go ahead. First off, when you talked about they, they start with lightning, not with Thor. Um, that reminded me of a, the very famous quote by the very famous scientist and author, Arthur C. Clarke, where he said in his 1962 book, uh, he says, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You've heard that, haven't you? Yes. And in fact, I, I, th that actually brings up a really good point. So when I, I keep holding up my fist here and saying, you know, acting like that's the data set, but really data, what we have available to us as data is growing all the time, right? The, 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 the information, the measurements that we have today compared to 20 years ago, compared to a thousand years ago is not the same. And so to, to some of, you know, an, an ancient, uh, you know, believer of Thor, I would actually say, well, what else would they have to explain that lightning? Right. What would be, what would be their alternate theory? And so, if they have no better explanation for the you know, better better is one of those words too that doesn't really mean anything. The least conjectured explanation, um, or a less conjectured explanation that I would I would have believed in Thor, because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have any other explanation that could explain the lightning with less conjecture. Now we, we have uh, explanations that require less conjecture. And so it would be irrational today. And so the data set, whatever is that data set, we're still starting with measurement, but we just have what we have. M maybe tomorrow we're going to have, you know, leprechauns are going to appear and we're all going to see them. And, and uh, I would believe in leprechauns because of that data. Yes. And you want to try and stay on the right side of the guy who's in charge of yeah. lightning. <laughs> There's this thing that happens where the apologist or the believer makes the argument that at some future point information will come out and it will justify the currently held position. And as you pointed out numerous times, when you, when you argue from that point of view, from that ground, <clears throat> when you argue from that point of ground, uh, point of view in that ground, you're acknowledging that your position in the present moment is irrational you have a belief, you have a, you've added conjecture that at some future point that information will come out and justify you. But as you've said multiple times, to believe that way is, as you put it, batshit crazy. And, and because none of us live our lives based on future evidence that we don't know of now that will come out and tell us differently about the world that we're in. So as you're pointing out, there may have been a day where the most rational, least conjecture position was that Thor was in charge of the lightning. It would have been absurd in that moment for somebody to throw out some science thing that no one could even comprehend because we don't have the technology yet to, to see it, to measure it, to perceive it. And if someone would have held any crazy position, it would have been crazy. <clears throat> we ought to always live in the present moment based on beliefs of what will happen based in the idea of what requires the least amount of conjecture. In other words, my wife has given me zero indications that she's having an affair on me for me to go. But I know that I will find that out. I'm going to discover it would be insane to operate in my life. And yet many believers operate this way 
day in and day out where they say someday something will come out. An archaeologist will find something, information will come out that will justify my current belief that is at present irrational. Yeah, that is exactly right. Yes. Yeah, I it, completely agree. 100%. And in a sense, isn't that the ultimate expression of arguing from your conclusion? That you're so committed to your conclusion, which you're admitting is not based on evidence, that you believe that there will yet be evidence to come in the future that will support your conclusion, which justifies you holding it in the here and now. Yeah. And then give, give me any theory that wouldn't work if you were to follow that, that heuristic. It's a tough one, but I don't want to forget my favorite definition of faith. I overlooked it uh, like half an hour ago. Sorry. This is from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Van Helsing's talking. Okay. And he talks about faith. It says faith is faith is when you believe something, you know, is not true. So do you think that Mormons know that Mormonism is not true? No, it was actually done a little bit tongue in cheek at the time. He's quoting an American, uh, an unnamed American. Uh, the faith is when you believe things you know are not true. And he says, you know, uh, it's funny, but there is some truth in that. So it's like saying it tongue in cheek. And yet he's pointing to the truth in it, that when we believe something we know is not true. I think that what he's getting at is faith is when we believe something that we know is not rational. Yes. Although, and I think that this is the key right here is that when we use all of those phrases that we talked about at the very beginning of the show, that, that actually helps you sort of kind of create a little world inside of your mind that you can actually believe that it is rational. When you, when you say, I, well, I listen to credible sources, I, you know, all these, these things that we were talking about, that I think that they genuinely believe that they are being rational. That they sure. actually, yeah, that they, they actually think that, they're, that, they're, that they have come up with a very reasonable faith, you know, re reasonable faith. That's what I think doing. so. And that's the beauty yeah. of an echo chamber. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Anything else you guys want to hash out here in terms of logical fallacies? And by the way, I'm hoping at some future point to get into a lot more of these and to talk about them and to help folks see how they're used within our religion and the world at large. But I also am excited to take a few phone calls if, if you guys are done. And if not, no, keep going. I just want to say this thing about faith, okay? Because at some point, I got myself into this mindset that the less rational, okay, faith is a virtue, at least within most religions. Certainly within Mormonism, faith is considered to be a virtue. The less rational something is, the more faith is required to believe it. Absolutely. And and therefore, I could end up getting myself in the position of thinking I am more virtuous because I'm able to have faith in something that is demonstrably unlikely. Right. You believing in the absurd, you could believe in the most absurd thing, and it requires the, a much more significant amount of faith yes. to believe in dragons than it does to believe in gravity. Yes. Yeah. And so if faith is a virtue and we're talking about the, you know, the apologists today are saying, look, we can fit into this, you know, at least plausible, you know, world of it could it could actually happen. Then what they're really saying is that they're they're giving up the virtue of being just that much far further away from the from the, the data. Right. And so it's like, so is it virtuous to stay close to the shore or is it virtuous to just take off and go as far away from from, you know, what's measurable as you can possibly get? And yeah, they, they, can't, they can't settle on that. They can't decide which which way is, uh, you know, is it more virtuous to be faithful or less virtuous to be faithful? 
Yeah. And as you started off saying RFM, um, I think you hit on kind of a new way to look at it, which is when you recognize that the more absurd thing you believe in, it requires a, a, a larger amount of faith to believe it. Then we can now connect the dots that a significant amount of faith is an indication of just how absurd the belief is, right? Like when someone tells me in church, have more faith, it's because my brain says this doesn't add up based on the data I'm seeing. And somebody's saying, basically ignore that, choose to believe in the more absurd thing. That is a virtue of faith. Um, as you're hitting on it, the absurdity could go forever. I believe in two-legged unicorns and I have this immense amount of faith to do it. So faith now is an ingredient in the larger amount of faith in your cake recipe, the more absurd the thing is you're trying to get to. But that's yeah. irrational, Bill, because everyone knows that unicorns have four legs. Four legs. Yes. Except the invisible ones that you can't see. Oh, jeez. Checkmate. <laughs> I'm going to – are you guys – anything else or I'll, I'll put us in for some phone calls? I did just want to say that I have absolute faith that in the future, archaeologists will discover uh, the remains of um, dragons. Yes, and they they may. You're going to need some faith to believe that right now, though, right? They will, and that's why I know it's true now. You have faith in it. <laughs> and, I, and I just heard a testimony of this, so now I have evidence. Yes, because I don't just have faith in it. I know it because yeah. I said so. And, and Scott here hits on it, too. What position can't you justify by appealing to faith? You could justify any position. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no there's no end the, the, the name name a claim that if you're allowed to have as much conjecture as you want or as much you know allowances as you want that you can't reach it, it doesn't exist or as much as you want i can answer that question because i think there is an answer to scott's question which is uh what position can't you justify by appealing to faith the rational position you can't, you can't use fair. Faith rational position fair. yes <laughs> no faith to believe in the most rational position, do you? Right. I don't need faith to believe the sky is blue. So I, I will just I will just add one thing though that I would still say that the most the most rational position still requires conjecture. When I when I say that my feeling is not God speaking to my heart, I don't I don't know that with absolute certainty. I, it could be that maybe that is maybe it's the Buddha you know talking to my to my chakras. It's possible, right? And so I don't know that, but when I'm picking the least conjectured explanation, I am employing some amount of conjecture to say that it's not the more conjectured explanation. And there, there are all kinds of times where we're wrong, right? It's like we use the least conjectured explanation for something, and it turns out that it was the 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 black swan the, the very next time. Right. I, I'm, I'm assuming that it's going to be the white swan because it's been the white swan every time. And then this time, my my reliance on the, the past evidence uh, ends up being wrong because now it's a black swan. And so I did I did have a conjecture that the next one was going to be white, yeah. but it's just the least amount of conjecture. It was a safe, safe conjecture. Right. And I think that's important that you brought that up because that had occurred to me before to ask you, which was that if we agree that there is a most rational conclusion to reach based upon all available evidence, that we have to acknowledge the fact that there are times and they're not necessarily infrequent that ultimately we find out that this most rational conclusion ends up being wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. We could find out tomorrow that Jesus is here, right? So Jesus does show up. I would be wrong. But, but you, but we all live based should, if we're rational live on the most, uh, the least conjectured conclusion, the most rational conclusion until 
further evidence actually does come in and change our mind. If you're, if you're gambling, it's the, it's the safe thing to do, right? Yeah. We're going we're to bet $1,000 on the sun coming up tomorrow or not coming up tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I can guess what most everybody is going to bet. And I can tell you why they're going to bet what they're going to bet too. Well, yeah, because yeah, you can't lose that bet. You, you could. It's possible. No. Oh, you no. because you'd be dead? Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, a, really safe bet. that's a great bet. Yes. Okay. One other little point. We'll get to phone calls here, which is sometimes the apologist or the believer throw out the idea that they have the second most rational conclusion. And there are other conclusions which are even less rational. So hence holding the second most rational conclusion is sufficient. Like that's, there's enough there to be sufficiently held onto, as you've also pointed out that I've plagiarized anything other than the most rational conclusion is irrational and is even the second most rational conclusion, if in your brain you know it's the second most rational conclusion, is still batshit crazy. It's true, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, you're gonna help us out here, Spence. Okay. So we have a telephone number, which is, I'll give you the numbers first, 435-200-3478. And um, the, uh, also we say 435-200, and you gotta hold your hand up here, Spence, fist. F-I-S-T. We call it an acronym. Yeah. So we've got our first caller. Caller, you are on the air. Tell us your name and uh, what's on your mind tonight. That must be me. Uh, my name is Jay. <laughs> is that me? Yeah, it's you, Jay. Go ahead, my friend. Okay. So, you know, the, the one, there, there's, a, I ran into a fellow up in Washington <laughs> and he's a staunch believer in flat earth. <laughs> and uh, so you I, I just have to throw that argument out that so uh, science eventually is going to be using our logic tonight. Uh, science eventually is going to prove the earth is flat. <laughs> um, the only other, other thing I want to. I, Why is that funny? Uh, years ago, I learned this concept that uh, I love it uh, called the, um, the, the second coming of Christ is already here. And it has nothing to do, or it's already occurred, and it has nothing to do with Jesus. Yeah. It's about it's about that good feeling we have. We all have it. Um, some, you know, Mormons call it the Holy Spirit. Christians call it the um, uh, love of Jesus, or whatever they call. You know, the, but you know, all religions have it. Yeah. But it's it's basically the same thing, and and the stories told about Jesus make him out to be the epitome or the best example of this Christedness. Right. Anyway, yeah, let, just let, thought I'd share that. Cool. We'll hang up and we'll address uh, a couple of the things you Thanks. said. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Um, one of the things you always point to RFM is this idea that apologists are always uh, moving the goalpost in a way so that the faithful position in an issue is essentially non-distinguishable from a intentional fraud, right? Yes. Like, like uh, the fraud of the book of Abraham looks exactly like how John Gee and Kerry Molstein would explain it. Like, you're going to see the same thing, guys. It's going to look like a fraud. But if you, you know, if, here's this and here's that. And, and at the end of the day, it, it's true. Um, you've said this numerous, numerous times on your podcast as well as here that they walk it back to a point where it's not distinguishable so that there's nothing left to really argue, right? There's nothing left to debate over. Right. And, and specifically, I think I say that about the catalyst theory as it relates to the book of Abraham, 
which is where uh, Joseph Smith thought he was translating from the papyrus, but he wasn't really translating from the papyrus. And God was conduiting down to him by revelation, this ancient text that he dictated. And when you get to that point, that's indistinguishable from a fraud. Right, right. And so we didn't start with the catalyst theory, but the catalyst theory was needed because it allowed it to look the exact same as what the critic was claiming was happening. And hence the believer could now still hold a faithful position. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And, and I think it kind of goes back to the God ate my homework uh, an analogy too, where we're, what we're essentially saying is what, what has been claimed has been pushed so far back to, you know, it's indistinguishable from a kid who, who did his homework, but his dog ate his homework and a kid who didn't need to do his homework. It's, it's, it's the same, same kind of comparison going on there. And so uh, fundamentally, God has eaten the homework of, you know, we've moved, we've moved the, the claim beyond what can actually be measured at all. Yeah. And so, but you're essentially just saying, sorry, all the evidence, anything that could actually prove that we're right has been swallowed up by, you know, a new claim that doesn't have anything to do with measurement. By the way, here's a true Scotsman's fallacy, right? God uh, makes himself known to true seekers. So if you don't know that God's made himself known to you, you must not be a true seeker. I love it. By the way, I do like the theory that's gaining in popularity that Radio Free Mormon is the second coming of Jesus. It's, it is very possible. Um, <laughs> and you shaved your beard so you can go into the temple and you can, you can serve in Mormon, you know spaces right you can you're you're worthy to go to byu because you've got a clean shaven face yeah this is why it's very important for me to stay on the good side of the guy who's in charge of the lightning yeah um the caller that just got off the phone with us he was mentioning flat earth it's at least important to note that these fallacies are used everywhere it's not just religion they are used in in any kind of absurd belief where people are piling in and QAnon and all these other kind of things that are out there um these same kinds of fallacies show up. Uh, just, a, just a note. Uh, caller number two, this is uh, Amanda. Amanda, you are on the air, Mormonism Live, with Radio Free Mormon, Bill Real and Spencer Wright. What are your thoughts tonight? Hey, yeah, thanks so much, and thanks for all that you guys do. Just a quick question, and maybe the caller before me um, touched on this and I didn't hear, but um, yeah, just about how religions use these logical fallacies and how they start us so early and the psychology behind that. Like my mom will use her patriarchal blessing and the fact that she says that like she will have unwavering faith and she wears that as a badge of honor. And to me, I'm raised in the same way she raised me, but I, I don't find faith as much as a, of a virtue. And so I'm just curious about the psychology behind it. Um, and your guys' thoughts on that and love to get Spencer's thoughts too from his point yeah, of view. Perfect. Thank you. I'll hang up with you. Thank you. Spencer, your thoughts there? Um, well, de definitely on the, the topic of uh, start, start, you know, start them young kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's important because that, that essentially forms the, the, the types of structures that we use in our brain to process information. And so when, when we see other people, you know, again, uh, a bandwagon fallacy here, right? It's like we see everybody around us is doing essentially the same thing. Uh, you start out as a, as a kid, you believe in Santa because basically everybody's talking about Santa. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm ruining somebody's 
police here. Um, but 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 eventually it kind of, you know, you see other people around you who, who stop believing in that particular belief. When we're talking about religious belief, we're talking about Mormonism, whatever, you're seeing grown adults who are basically just talking about it as though it is true. They're all using those same kind of uh, fallacious uh, you know, ways of processing information. And so you feel completely justified. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about the, you, you feel like what you're doing is rational because you see adults doing the same exact thing that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. RFM, anything there on that one? I just think that uh, it's way beyond the scope of this uh, broadcast, but the idea of so many people believing irrational things um, like flat earth, my apologies to any flat earthers out there in the audience, but I think there's a seductiveness and an attractiveness that human beings have to being on the inside of a secret. They want to be in the know. They want to understand something that nobody else understands, which is usually going to lead them to irrational things, right? Not always, but usually it's going to lead you to more of an irrational thing because the majority of people are probably going to believe things that are more rational as a general rule. But who doesn't want to be in on a secret with mm -hmm. somebody else? And so this, this flat <laughs> earth is a great example. So I'm in on the secret. I'm in the know of how things really are which usually ends up being in conspiracies and persecutions of other people who are representing science uh, falsely <clears throat> over and over as showing that the earth is actually round. Yeah. 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 And, and on that point, um, so, so fundamentally the, the people who are in on the secret, they're going to then turn around and say, well, you're just appealing to the bandwagon fallacy. You're just saying, because lots of people believe, you know, believe the opposite of what I believe, that's almost evidence that they're all wrong because they're all using the, the bandwagon fallacy. And right. so again, this is why it's so important that we have to point to something other than lots of people believe it in order to actually demonstrate why that thing that lots of people believe is actually the rational answer. Well, okay. one billion Chinese cannot be wrong. Not be wrong. Was, my, I, oh, I, I was going to name name a name, but I'll leave the name out. But uh, somebody who I know had, had often used the phrase about Mormonism with their you know 10, 15 million members. That many people can't be wrong. It's like that's a very small percentage of the population of the earth. Point yeah. two percent, if you count the inactives and the people they're still counting, <laughs> no longer call themselves Mormon. It was literally playing the both sides of the bandwagon fallacy. Yeah. And like Elder Uchtdorf said, nobody who speaks German can be all bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're going to go to our last call for the night. This is Aaron. Aaron. Sorry. I, I, hold on. Oh, I pushed Don't the wrong button. Uh, give me just oh, give me one second, Aaron. Sorry. Gonna, <laughs> how's that? I hope we're getting some laughs out there because I'm dying in here. I, when you joke, I'm in the middle of going like, hey, I got to get Aaron on. How do I transition? And I'm my brain's not there. So, Spencer, it's your job to laugh at RFM when he tells funny <laughs> Thank you. This is the A material. This is as good as it gets. This is it. All right, Aaron, you are on the air. Mormonism Live. Uh, take us home, my friend. I, I really appreciate the show tonight and the conversation on these logical fallacies. I'm an educator, and I've watched this kind of education um, – you know, be uh, moved out of education for, for various reasons. Um, I'm just wondering what, uh, what the feeling is of how do, we, how do we educate people? How do we have debate clubs again and, and those kinds of things? 
uh, it just seems like this is something that is so needed right now in not only religion, but in so many aspects of our life. And I just wondered if he has, uh, if Spencer has any ideas on how to do that. Perfect. So thank thank you. you. We'll hang up. Thank you. So, and, and I think this kind of goes back to what we discussed at the very beginning of the program, where if we, you know, be, be the, the Gandhi idea, be the change that you want to be, you know, see in the world. And so if you want people to, to be less rational, then you yourself stop using the phrases like critical thinking, you know, the, the phrase, everybody thinks they're a critical thinker. And so instead of relying on, well, that's not, you, you didn't think critically here, uh, ex help people understand why that's, you know, what is the difference? You need, you need to be able to have something that is true, that's quantifiably true about your position that is not quantifiably true about the other position. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that, that's how to be right. And anything where you say, well, I'm thinking, you know, logically, I'm a critical thinker, they're gonna, they, they can say the same thing because it doesn't mean anything. The words, the words don't mean anything unless you put some, some numbers behind it. Love it. Spencer, thanks so much for being part of tonight. This was a really fun conversation. <laughs> I, think, I think this helped people kind of sort out what rational thinking is and how these fallacies, which really are Jedi mind tricks to try to get us to continue to hold absurd beliefs, how they work. Um, I thought we would finish off RFM with that Molstein quote again. And when I play it this time around, and then we'll close out the show. Um, when I play it this time, I want you to listen to Carrie, everybody, and notice that he leaves zero room in his statement for his mind to be changed to some other position. And so I start out with an assumption that the book of Abraham and the book of Mormon and anything else, <clears throat> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true. And on these points, we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. So that's okay, Spencer, thank you so much for being on tonight, my friend. Thank you. What, oh, yeah, no. sorry, so go ahead. It was so great to have you on, Spencer. Let's not let him go. Just before I say, the line that jumped out at me that time listening to Kerry Muelstein was when he says, I don't want to defend that paradigm. I just want to understand it. And I think he gave away the farm when he said that. Yeah. He says, I don't want to defend it. What I hear is, I know I can't defend it. Yeah. Can okay. I can I throw out one other thought too? That he's he's actually he's actually right. That we do we do start with with uh, assumptions. Our, 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 all paradigms start with certain assumptions. But basically what he's saying is it's the difference between a, a referee in a, in a sports game saying, um, <clears throat> I'm going to start with the assumption that the blue team is going to win versus I'm going to start with the assumption that the team that scores the most points is going to win. And so the, the, what we should be doing rationally is saying, whatever the data says, that's what we're going to go with, not starting with the blue team is going to win. That, it's a that's a terrible assumption. Perfect. Anything else from you guys? <clears throat> right, not for me. I think that I've pretty much interrupted my way through this entire podcast. No, no, no. You did great. I, I love the conversation. This was one of my favorites. So Spencer, thank you very much. RFM pleasure as always, my friend. Uh, we'll close it out. Instead of Boyd K. Packer, why don't we put a little President Hinckley on, okay? Great. Good night, everybody. My dear beloved brothers and sisters.
It is with a heavy heart that I come to you today. <clears throat> Excuse me. I come to you now with all open-mindedness and an open heart to tell you of the truth of the so-called self-proclaimed prophet of the Lord, even Joseph Smith himself. I declare openly, this man was a fraud. He married other men's wives, took children to wife, practice in a, pra <coughs> excuse me, practice an abominable, <coughs> practice, 